Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you come among us as one who serves, but so often we want to be those who are served. Help us now, we pray, to listen afresh to the radical message that you bring of your kingdom and grant us the courage to be able to live it out in our lives and in the church both in here and beyond its walls. In your name we pray. Amen. From Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6, we find these words. And a little child shall lead them. Well, all the votes have long since been counted, and as they say, the people have spoken. The country has chosen a new government with, to most people's surprise, and certainly to the surprise of the pollsters and the pundits, a government with a small working majority. We usually anticipate that choices in politics are made on the basis of policies. But in many cases, those choices are made on a variety of other reasons too, not least on personalities. We've tended to see that happening more and more in recent times, as through the media, our parliamentary elections seem to become more like American-style presidential elections where the vote we make is deemed to count for the party or the party leader, when in actual fact what we're doing is electing a constituency member of parliament. This evening's gospel reading offers a perspective from Jesus on leadership. One of the major differences between the time of Jesus and our own era is that we have democratic elections, which often we take for granted, whilst Jesus, of course, would have known only Roman occupation of his country. And that gave no choice whatsoever in electing leaders. Those who waste or disregard their right to vote today, I think, should reflect on this point. And I think, too, given what this weekend is, has been all about, to reflect on those who gave their lives so that all men and women might have the right to vote, to exercise that choice in freedom, and therefore to elect the government of the people's choice. Jesus takes it as a given that the kings of the Gentiles, as he calls non-Jewish rulers, will have no compunction in exercising power and authority over the lives of the subjects they rule. Indeed, such rulers would see this as the natural order of things, a view consistently taken by the ruling classes in virtually every human society before and since. 
Often, as with the Romans, power and authority were exercised with harsh brutality and ruthlessness, as Jesus himself was to discover to his own personal cost. So, it shouldn't surprise us that the disciples of Jesus simply assume and take for granted the world's understanding about greatness. Those disciples were clearly arguing among themselves which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. To reach the top of the pile and was and still is a natural human instinct. And those who attain such heights would usually do so by strength of character, the use of power, and by force of will and determination. From that high vantage point, they could then look down on everyone else. We may go about it in more subtle ways today, especially in the politics of the West, but this is still how leaders rise to position and prominence, not only in politics, but in other walks of life too. So it's through this assumption about greatness, through this worldview, if you like, of what human greatness is all about, that Jesus cuts with his teaching and with his sayings. He looks at these quarrelsome disciples and says to them very clearly, but that is not the way with you. And then he goes on to offer a radical alternative. Rather, he says, the greatest among you should become like the youngest, and the leader, or the one who rules, like the one who serves. What Jesus is doing is completely overturning the whole basis on which power and authority were exercised then and are still exercised today. The greatest should be like the youngest, he says. Now, this isn't the first time that Luke has recorded a statement of this kind from Jesus. Go back in Luke's Gospel to chapter 9 and verse 46, and again, strangely enough, we find the disciples arguing about greatness among themselves. On this occasion, Jesus presents a little child to them. And he makes what would have been, for those who heard it, a mind-blowing assertion. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name, he said, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. In other words, Jesus is saying, in a little child that he presents to these disciples, he is saying that almighty God, in all his power, greatness, and majesty, is to be seen. Now, first century Palestine was not as child-centered a society as 21st century Britain. Children then were seen as unimportant, adults in waiting, if you like. They had no power or authority, and hence they had no status or importance. 
That may explain why in other gospel accounts the disciples tried to prevent children from approaching Jesus, something which Jesus rebuked his disciples for doing. Let them come to me, he said, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus, I believe, saw the value and importance of children as reflecting something of his own nature and also the nature of his Father in heaven. Some have thought that Jesus was admiring their innocence or their goodness. But children, at least not all children, possess either of those two attributes. No, what I believe Jesus was holding up to his disciples here was a model for them to follow in the sense that children present a sense of, in, of dependence. Children are inevitably dependent upon adults, especially parents or other family members. In the face of disciples vying for superiority over each other, Jesus was presenting them with a dependent child. He might well have said, you must be as dependent on your heavenly father as this child is dependent on her earthly mother or father. The pursuit of greatness and the exercise of power and influence are activities that require single-mindedness and therefore a large degree of independence. These are qualities that we often admire in others and aspire to ourselves or encourage our children or our grandchildren to acquire. But Jesus sees that, good though those qualities may be, they are not always conducive to discipleship, which at its heart requires trust in Jesus and in our Heavenly Father. So, the least among you is the greatest, Jesus tells his disciples. And in a similar upside-down statement, he also declared, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Here, Jesus was talking very clearly about the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew called it, or the kingdom of God, as it is referred to in the other Gospels. And that's another difference between our present political systems and the sovereign rule of God's love in human life. Some Christians down the years have sought to equate the kingdom of God with earthly political systems, but that kind of venture to build God's kingdom on earth through human political structures, has usually ended in failure and disillusion. Such attempts always founder on the fact that political systems like human greatness are based on different values from those of the kingdom of God. The aspiration to personal greatness and the exercise of human power and authority sit very uneasily with a dependence on God and an attitude of humble service towards others. Even though, I believe, it has to be said, many of our members of Parliament do genuinely seek 
to serve their constituents in that kind of way. And I don't hold with the popular belief that they're all there in it for themselves. When the church has sought to follow the teaching and example of Jesus in terms of leadership and service, rather than following the top-down model of the world, it has proved to be a more powerful agent of God's kingdom by offering a radical alternative to the approach of some political leaders. But that does not mean that Christians should have no part to play in political life. In fact, quite the contrary. Jesus tells his faithful, if at times inadequate, disciples that he is conferring on them a kingdom. And he promises that they will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That was quite a political statement for Jesus to make in his day. In other words, Jesus is saying they will become the greatest of rulers with an authority that worldly politicians can only dream of. Here, Jesus is referring to the time when the kingdom of God will come in all its fullness at the end of the age, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. That is the time when the order of things in this world will be finally reversed, when the last shall be first and the least will become the greatest. And as Isaiah said, looking to that future kingdom, a little child shall lead them. Until then, we seek to build the kingdom of God following the example of Jesus And building the kingdom of God can include political activity as well as church activity or evangelical activity or social activity or or outreach. But in all that we do, however we seek to build the kingdom of God, Jesus calls us to do three things. Firstly, to be dependent in all things, upon our Heavenly Father. Secondly, he calls us, I believe, to discern the greatness that is to be found amongst what the world calls the least and the last. And thirdly, I believe he calls us to adopt a pattern of humble and loving service in whatever way we express that, in all our dealings, with others, and with the world. And alongside of all that, I believe we are meant to continue in every way possible to work for the good of our nation and always to pray for the government of our country. Thanks be to God. Amen.